we know that Joseph was sealed to several plural wives without telling Emma about it before Emma knew. How in the world do you reconcile that kind of behavior with his calling as a prophet of God? Isn't that a little strange? Does that cast doubt on his integrity and his credibility as a prophet? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know how we reconcile that. I know that we make a lot of guesses. We actually don't know when Emma found out about polygamy. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. I'm Daniel Peterson of the Interpreter Foundation. I'm sitting down with Brian Hales and Laura Hales to talk about polygamy. What could be more fun than that? I just want to say a word to introduce this. This is a, a podcast that we're producing jointly, the Interpreter Foundation, which I represent, and Brian and Laura represent LDS Perspectives podcast. Brian is an anesthesiologist who, uh, he tells me, and I love this line, charges people to put them to sleep. I've thought sometimes that's really the business I'm in as well as a professor at BYU. He has become, over the past, I don't know how many years, certainly one of the premier authorities on the origins and, to some extent, the development of plural marriage in the, uh, in the LDS Church and in Mormonism. And Laura Hales is the editor of the recently released book, Reason for Faith, which is an anthology of articles on various issues that come up or that cause problems for people or pose challenges to people. So we're going to talk about plural marriage. And I, I guess I'll just start off by saying the establishment of polygamy in the church is a topic that a lot of members and a lot of outsiders find difficult to understand, or maybe even worse, I think they find it too easy to understand. Certainly critics do. They know immediately what it's about, or they think they do. It seems obvious. What are some of the reasons you think that people struggle with this? I think one of the reasons is that they didn't know about Joseph Smith as a polygamist. Many church members were unaware that he practiced plural marriage. Laura and I met a couple of missionaries, and they had learned that we'd been presenting on this topic, and the senior companion looked at us and said, so Joseph was a polygamist, and he seemed a little concerned. And he says, no, I'm not having a faith crisis, but that was his response. So it isn't common knowledge, so people are surprised when they encounter that. The other thing is that anytime you put sex and religion together, you've got a hot button topic and it's going to require more faith, more study and, and more contemplation, I think, uh, than if those things are not included. Why hasn't the church been more forthright about this? I mean, a lot of people say, look, I haven't been told everything I should have been told. Church has been hiding this sort of stuff from me. So why do you think the church has been so reluctant to talk about it? Well, there was an attitude among some of the brethren that it was better to keep some aspects of our prophet's lives private. We know this because recent interviews have come forth. One was an interview with Ronald Walker. He said that when Leonard Arrington was writing his biography on Brigham Young, he was asked by one of the brethren to take out all references to polygamy. They did actually want to protect the prophets. In the case of Brigham Young, I don't personally see the necessity of that because the whole world knows that Brigham Young was a polygamist because by the time he practiced polygamy, the Eastern Press got a hold of it. And I'll mention that 
Even though most of us didn't know that Joseph Smith was a polygamist, and we did know that Brigham Young was a polygamist, we didn't get that knowledge from church curriculum. We got that from culture. So some people want to put those two in a different category that, okay, we were told about Brigham Young, but we weren't told about Joseph. We weren't told about either. They were silent on both, though we know it was practiced. So I can't answer why questions very well, but I can say that things are changing. Elder Russell Ballard gave a talk to CES employees. We called this a watershed talk. Because in this talk, he admits that the well-meaning curriculum in the past did not meet the needs of what our youth today need. There needs to be more transparency about our past. And so the brethren are making efforts to change what maybe past leaders thought was important. They have made documents available on the Joseph Smith Papers Project, the Mountain Meadows Massacre Project was very transparent about what happened in that unfortunate incident. And then they brought forth the Gospel Topics essays, which they talk about these hot-button topics. They are making strides, even incorporating these Gospel Topics essays into our curriculum. So yes, perhaps they should have done more earlier, but they're doing the best they can right now to bring the information out. Brian, do you have anything to add on that, what the church is doing now to help members better understand uh, details about Joseph Smith and plural marriage and so on? Well, the Gospel Topics essays are really helpful because they're dealing with controversial topics that we never really talked about, or if you tried to talk about them just a few years ago, people would think that you were a heretic in church. But also, I've had a couple of conversations that have impressed me that the church is committed to this. One was with Elder Stephen Snows, a church historian, and I had noticed how much material, scanned documents, the church is now making available without charge for download by any researcher on the Church History Library's website. It's amazing, it's staggering the amount of material that you can now download from that site. And I complimented him on that, and he just said simply, transparency is important. The internet is allowing the church to do many things it couldn't do before. I also had a conversation with a church historian who related how he had asked President Uchtdorf of the First Presidency, how many of these documents should we make available online? And President Uchtdorf reportedly said, all of it. And I'm sure that won't include church discipline and, and temple items, but what he's reflecting, what President Uchtdorf is reflecting is that the church can withstand scrutiny, and that's why we're willing to put up all of these documents and let the critics as well as the believers have access to them. Now, Laura, we don't sanction polygamy today. I mean, it's done, I suppose, in a ceremonial way, sometimes uh, in, in certain cases in the temples, but we don't have living polygamous relationships in the church, not legally anyway, uh, not sanctioned by the church. But some church members are still uncomfortable with the past practice of polygamy, even though it's not directly relevant today. What about that? Well, because our culture is about monogamy, it just seems unnatural. And it's difficult to understand why this would be a commandment of this small group of people at this time. And we have some reasons given to us in DNC 132, but in general, the reasons don't seem large enough to fill in the space of 
how strange of a practice it seems to us. And so, of course, it is uncomfortable to think of Joseph Smith having 30 to 40 wives. That's, that's a perfectly logical reaction to finding out the details of Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy. Sometimes when members hear new details about church history, it, they disturb them. We often, frankly, Americans in particular, I suppose, aren't a very historically minded people. We don't have the thousand years behind us they have in Europe and so on. And we, most people in schools find history boring. But then when they discover certain things about church history, they're shocked because they haven't known them. And maybe they should have known them, but they didn't. And they're blindsided. So those things sometimes cause questions to arise or doubts about Joseph's behavior. Is this, is this really the way a prophet of God should have behaved? So if you don't mind, I'm going to mention some specific issues that, that I hear pretty regularly and let you respond with some details or ideas that might help people to, uh, to understand those issues. And the first one is the obvious one. In our culture today, I suspect it's the one that first comes to mind, and that is, did Joseph Smith introduce plural marriage in a bid to expand his sexual opportunities? Well, it, it's a great question, and I'm sure every member has probably thought of it as well, and it, it's a very legitimate concern. If I were to stand on a street corner in a large city, say Cincinnati, and just say, hey, Joseph Smith introduced polygamy among the Mormons, why do you think he did it? Virtually every person is going to say, well, he probably wanted sex. They aren't going to say, well, you know, I bet he was a prophet restoring Old Testament polygamy. That just is not going to occur to them. And so when people say this or think this or allege this, we're, we're not surprised at that. But it is important for us who, who believe to understand what Joseph taught. The first was that it was a special trial for the membership, and God has been known to require special trials of other people at other times and places upon this earth, and between 1840s and 1890, this was one of the special trials for the Latter-day Saints. A second one has to do with a restitution of all things. This is found in Acts 3, verses 19 through 21. We use this sometimes, Dan, as the easy answer. Somebody says, why did Joseph do it? You say, well, he was a prophet restorer, and he restored it. And then you can kind of move on. The other part of this, though, is that what he really restored, we believe, was eternal marriage. And I personally think that eternal marriage was the zenith teaching that Joseph brought back. Through it, we can become exalted. And then, of course, plural marriage is one of the components or one of the practices that can that's associated with it sometimes, but not always. And then, Dan, the third reason is just the, to multiply and replenish the earth, that uh, having children with his polygamous wives was one of the reasons. It was the most important one. And we would probably be wise to point out that the evidence does not show that Joseph was having a lot of uh, sexual relations with his plural wives. None of them had children that we know anything about. Recently, DNA evidence uh, dismissed the most likely candidate, at least in my research, uh, showing Joseph was not the father. Many other reasons and evidences and observations indicate that sexuality was not a common occurrence. I just need to interject. You mentioned that as a culture, Americans aren't so much into history because we don't have a deep culture. But as members of the church, as Mormons, we're very much into our history, probably more than other religious sects. And that's because so many of our truth claims hinge on historical events. 
So when we bring a new bit of that history in there that is unfamiliar and uncomfortable, I think that adds to why it's so disturbing. Yeah. I think that's a really important point because we on the whole, Mormons don't do theology, really. We don't have theologians. We have historians. That's where our issues are fought out. There are questions like, was there a first vision? Is the Book of Mormon historical? Did Moroni really come to Joseph Smith? Those issues matter. Or, you know, when Joseph died, was there really a transformation of Brigham Young such that we know he's the legitimate successor? We don't argue, you know, and split hairs over the nature of the Holy Spirit or something like that. We just don't do that. So that's, I think, a really important point. Well, you know, we've said that uh, polygamy was not important for exaltation unless you live at a certain time when maybe you're commanded to do it, but uh, at times when uh, when polygamy was practiced and so on. But uh, And that was only in our dispensation during a few decades in the 19th century. But that still doesn't put the issue simply into the past as a, as a matter of antiquarian interest. There are some people who worry still today that they might have to be polygamists in the life to come. And, you know, I've thought sometimes that would probably concern women more than men, but it might concern men too. I don't know. So what about that, Laura? Well, I think it's always been the elephant in the room, even before this increased dialogue on polygamy. There was this joke about if we're going to populate worlds on end, we want to have some help. But it was a joke to dispel the actual pain. I don't think any of us really want to be polygamous, including men. I've talked to plenty of men who said, one's enough, thank you very much. With the heightened dialogue, you have more people researching the topic, bringing up issues. One of them is that they quote mine in the journal of discourses now you know what quote mining is right you're looking for something specifically so you find what you want and you go aha i've caught it well the fundamentalist sects of mormons have done this for years to justify the continued practice of polygamy the same quotes keep coming up over and over and over again there's a couple by brigham young and another one by Joseph F. Smith, where it seems like they're saying that polygamy is required for exaltation. But if you read those quotes in context, you will either read from the speaker themselves that they're simply opining on the topic, this is something they personally believe, even though it hasn't been revealed, or it's simply being quoted out of context. But these quotes have been exploited over the last couple years, as more and more people are learning about polygamy, I think to incite fear, just to say this is a really horrible thing. And look, these people say we have to do it. So now this really is something we need to worry about because it is our problem because our theology teaches this when actually our theology does not teach that. Mm -hmm. No prophet has ever said that polygamy is required for exaltation. Joseph Smith didn't say it. And President Thomas S. Monson hasn't said it either. You know, there's an ironic uh, parallel that occurs to me, and I've been intrigued over the past number of years when I see certain claims about violence in Islam and how Islam is supposed to treat non-Muslims. And what really interests me is that the extremist Muslim, the violent extremists out there, read the Quran in the same way. I think they misread it that the critics of Islam do. They all point to the same verses and say, see, this commands us to kill all non-believers. 
Most Muslims don't read them that way, but the irony is that the critics and the hyper-fundamentalists share the same reading of the text. And that's that's true in an odd way here, that you have the, the real critics of Mormonism want to show that Mormonism is always committed to polygamy and exploitation of women. And then, you know, certain of the fundamentalist groups who actually do believe that. But most of the rest of us read those pass- passages and think, no, that's not what it's saying at all. That is really interesting. Yeah. You mentioned that women are very worried about it. And that, I think, we encounter more in our travels that women will come up and be concerned. But I really think if men would think about it, they would be absolutely as concerned as the women. It is not an easy dynamic to live here on earth. And I believe that at the time it was commanded, virtually any man or woman, if they could have just lived monogamously with God's blessing, they would have chosen monogamy over polygamy. Well, I'm going to raise a difficult question here. This is one that uses an explosive word, but it's one of the charges that's commonly leveled against Joseph Smith. Isn't it true that Joseph Smith married young women because he was a pedophile? As you know, the word pedophile is something that we would apply to a man who's sexually interested in children, usually under 11. So the word does not apply to any of Joseph's wives or any, anybody that Joseph Smith was involved with. When we hear that word, we know that the person is either terribly uninformed or trying to sensationalize the situation and usually has some agenda that they're promoting. Um, It is true that Joseph was sealed to a number of teenagers. There were four, if I can remember, four 19-year-olds, I think three 18, uh, 16, and a couple of 14-year-olds. And it's true that a 14-year-old was eyebrow-raising, that a ceiling or a marriage to a 14-year-old would have, would have been a little out of the norm, but it wasn't that abnormal. Marriages occurred at much younger ages. But as we study that one, and the one we can learn about was Helen Mark Kimball, who was 14. She lived to be very old, so she gave us a lot of information about what happened to her. We investigate that and learn that Dad was the one who actually set it up. It wasn't Joseph was pursuing this 14-year-old or anything like that. Joseph did go along, but her dad, Heber C. Kimball, set it up, and Helen agreed, and Joseph agreed, and there was a ceiling. I think the evidence is pretty clear it was not consummated. And in Utah, Dan, there was a policy to not consummate marriages to the younger wives until they had hit like 18 years of age or 19. I believe that policy began in Nauvoo with Joseph. I can't prove that, but that's what I believe. It's the problem, isn't it, of presentism that we, uh, you know, we look at these things and we think, 14, that's shocking. As Brian said, it's eyebrow raising, but maybe wasn't scandalous then. It'd be a little, you know, a little on the young side, but not unheard of. The term that I hear used quite often is underage, Hmm. as if that has an absolute definition. What does underage mean? It wasn't underage according to the law of that time, or even of our time right now, if you have a parent's permission. It's not underage in many countries now, even without a parent's permission. It was young. It wasn't the average marrying age. But to say underage, I think, is a really loaded term that isn't easily defined. Well, and especially if, as you say, it was uh, maybe more like a betrothal and wasn't consummated, then 14 is even less shocking if you view it in that context, it seems to me. Of course. All right. Now, you know, it was mentioned that Heber C. Kimball set this up, which I think is really interesting because the portrayal of Joseph as a pedophile has him sort of leering, you know, pursuing 
Heber C. Kimball's daughter, but that's not the way it turns out. It's Heber C. Kimball who sets this up. But that, too, has its problems. I mean, maybe not for Joseph, but we think, what in the world is a father doing setting up a marriage like that between Joseph Smith and his 14-year-old daughter? Well, we don't have arranged marriages nowadays, but certainly throughout history, arranged marriages are not unheard of. In this case, we don't have to conjecture very much because of all of Joseph's plural wives, the one who wrote the most about her experience as a plural wife and about her experience with polygamy was Helen Marr Kimball. And her writings have been collected in a book called A Woman's View, which is mostly a letter she wrote to her kids, plus articles that were published in the Woman's Exponent in the 1880s. Her friend Emmeline Wells was concerned that the younger generation didn't understand polygamy and how it had unfolded in the Nauvoo days because that wasn't part of their collective consciousness. All they remember is Utah and polygamy always being there. So she approached Helen, who was normally quite private about this relationship, and said, hey, will you write a series of articles? And Helen agreed. So in Helen's words... She attributed Heber C. Kimball's desire for her to be married to Joseph as a desire to bind their families together for eternity. So you have to realize the doctrine of eternal marriage was unfolding line upon line. By having Helen marry Joseph, we know that they would be bound for eternity conditional upon righteousness. We don't necessarily know how that would have affected Heber C. Kimball and Villate and the rest of their family, but Heber loved Joseph and he wanted this binding link. We may not have made the same choice being in the same situation, but Helen thought about the prospect laid before her and at first she recoiled but then she thought, my father loves me too much to ask anything of me that was not strictly moral. And so she acquiesced. It's very interesting. I've read all of Helen's writings, and I can't find anywhere in there any suggestion that she was even alone with Joseph without a chaperone. She went to dances for six months after she married him. So that suggests that she didn't consider herself a married woman. Some people criticize this because they say, well, that's evidence that she didn't really realize what she was getting into. And Helen herself admitted that she didn't understand what she was getting into it. But later in life, she didn't have a problem with the ceiling. In fact, it's kind of a little poignant little note in her autobiography where she describes her experience to her children. She signs this letter she's written to them and she goes back and overwrites Smith before her last name, Whitney. And to me, that's kind of an acceptance of that binding that she did with Joseph. She never blamed her parents. She had plenty of years to do that. She loved her parents her whole life. So Helen didn't judge them. For us to judge them, you need to think twice about that. 
That's very interesting. I, I've sometimes wondered, and I'm just, I'm going to drop this speculation here and not develop it because I'm not in a position to develop it, but I've wondered sometimes if this eagerness to form family ties might not have been related also to the practice of adoption that was going on in the church in those days, that people would have themselves sealed, not to their great-great-grandparents. We think, well, you have to be sealed in your line back as far as you can go. They'd be sealed to a general authority. First of all, they didn't have the resources. They didn't have a genealogical society or microfilms or microfiche or let alone computers. And they thought the end was coming fairly soon. And the idea is form these family units, form these links that will continue into the eternities. And so it's not just plural marriage. It's linking up whole families with, you know, people who were sealed to Brigham Young and, and Wilfred Woodruff and so on. I think we don't do those things anymore. Wilfred Woodruff received a revelation that leads to the founding of the Genealogical Society saying, no, you guys have got it wrong. You're supposed to be sealed to your family back as far as you can go. But once you understand that and their conception, it actually makes sense. It's not as crazy as it may seem. Brigham Young talked about how uh, there was a conversation with Joseph and a woman, and she said she'd rather be single in the next life than be married. And Joseph said, you talk very foolishly. You don't know what you're going to want in that next life. And then he looked at Brigham and said, Brigham, seal her to me. And it was just that uh, unfeeling, unemotional, but the ordinance was seen as being necessary. It was Brigham's sister, Fanny Young, and he did seal Fanny to Joseph. There was no thought of sexuality or anything, at least according to the story. But having that sealing in place was important, at least in Joseph's eyes. That's a fascinating story. Well, I'm going to raise another difficult issue. We know that Joseph was sealed to several plural wives without telling Emma about it, before Emma knew. How in the world do you reconcile that kind of behavior with his calling as a prophet of God? Isn't that a little strange? Does that cast doubt on his integrity and his credibility as a prophet? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know how we reconcile that. I know that we make a lot of guesses. We actually don't know when Emma found out about polygamy. We know for sure that she didn't know about two marriages, and we can make educated guesses by other documents that she didn't know about some other marriages but by 1843, May, she knew about plural marriage and she was temporarily supportive of it. By that time, Joseph had been married to quite a few women, most of them for eternity only. We don't know if she knew about those. In DNC 132, there's some phrasing where it says, Joseph, you have transgressed and Emma needs to forgive you. We don't know what that means. But we can assume that it has to do with the practice of polygamy, and perhaps it was that he hadn't told her. But we also know that prophets aren't perfect. They make mistakes. Doesn't mean that they can't necessarily lead the church and receive revelation. So if we put a prophet on the pedestal and say he has to be perfect, I think we'll be disappointed every time. I don't know how to justify it. We can just say it happened. And they worked through it because at Joseph's death, it's quite evident they still loved each other deeply. Every letter that Joseph wrote to Emma, he expressed his love for her. And over Joseph's casket, Emma was crying and a friend came up to comfort her. And she said, Joseph was my crown. She still adored him. That's 
Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I, I try to imagine myself in Joseph's situation, and I, I think, uh, gosh, would I have done better? I mean, it's easy to point the finger and criticize, but suppose you've been given a commandment that you know is going to bring down all sorts of social opprobrium on your head, and, and in a society that's far more, if you will, repressed than ours is. It would be far less tolerant of that kind of thing. And, and also that you're involved in something that you know will hurt someone you care a lot about. And I can imagine wanting to sort of hide it, thinking I'll tell her at some point, but I just can't do it today, not today. I'll do it tomorrow, uh, and then I'll do it next week. You know, I just anyway. It seems really human to me. Even assuming him to be a prophet, I also assume him to be a human prophet, and uh, you know, someone who might have had a really hard time with this and not have known exactly. Remember, he's he's dead before he's thirty-nine. You know, he's a very young man, and he's. Uh, doesn't always know exactly how to do these things. The Lord says, all right, you're going to be a prophet. Well, how do I do that? Well, you'll figure it out. It's sometimes a bit of that. I think one of the things that I learned from Richard Bushman's uh, Rough Stone Rolling, I don't know if it's a lesson he intended to teach or something, but it hit me that we assume that he knew how to do what he was doing from the start. Like he's just born like Athena from the forehead of Zeus. You know, he's fully formed. He knows exactly how to do it all. And he doesn't. I mean, you read the accounts of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and he, he doesn't know how to translate this. How do I do this? He sends the facsimiles off partly to find somebody who's qualified who can maybe do the translation because he doesn't know he's supposed to do it. And he's gradually realizing that what his role is, but you shouldn't assume that Joseph is this just consummate expert on everything and knows how to do everything exactly right from the start. He's human. He's a young man. He's trying to figure it out. And if he makes mistakes, well, I've made a few, and I suspect other people have too. You know, it's funny. We see the prophet in the distant past, but those who knew him at the beginning of the church, it was a small club. They loved Joseph, but they also knew Joseph. And so I think it was easier for those who were his contemporaries to accept that he was a prophet and he was a man than maybe us looking back. I thought, by the way, that one of the most significant testimonies is that of his brother Hiram, his older brother Hiram. That's what really strikes me. I mean, if your younger brother came to you and said, look, I've had a vision, I've seen God, all this sort of thing, most older brothers would say, you're right. <laughs> you, you, you little creep, you know. <laughs> I've known you all your life. And, and Hiram has known him all his life and follows him. And the family follows him. The people who know him really well, the people who knew him the best tended to love him the most. That's striking to me. Even though they knew that he was human and he had flaws, they, uh, they weren't put off by that. And now sometimes we've raised him. I think this is dangerous. We raise him to such a high pedestal that if we find out he has a flaw, we're shocked and appalled. And that's not fair. That's not fair to him, it seems to me. It's doing him an injustice. So I'm still not done with the tough questions. Isn't it true that Joseph Smith stole other men's wives? I will say, uh, Dan, this is probably the most common question we get asked. It's either that or the question about Emma not knowing that we just discussed. So one of those two is the most common. And it is true that Joseph was sealed to 14 women who had legal husbands, or at least the evidence indicates that it could be up to 14. Among these women, though, what we're finding as the research goes on and, and new things are coming to light, as I mentioned earlier, there's DNA testing showing that Joseph was not the father of the one 
daughter that I had predicted would be his daughter. Instead, she was fathered by Windsor Lyon. In that, what we are thinking is that the sealings were all what we call eternity only. And what that means is that the woman is sealed to Joseph just for the next life. She stays with her legal husband for this life, and there's no sexuality or anything. There's no marriage for this life. And while we don't have a lot of information on a couple of these, and there's one that's an exceptional case, it may be that all of the others are just of this type. But the other important point I would make is that nobody who's been saying Joseph is practicing polyandry, and polyandry is the, uh, the word for plurality of husbands, multiple husbands, but none of these researchers are asking the questions like, what did the woman believe? about the marriages after the second marriage ceremony because if one if the second ceremony caused the first one to be superseded or annulled then the woman would only have one husband and in the gospel the the teaching is that the new and everlasting covenant the sealing would cause all old covenants to be done away and i'm not sure that dynamic actually ever occurred i thought it had in that one case but uh, if it had there there still is no way in the gospel for a woman to have two actual husbands and then I should also just add that there is this rumor out there the critics love to repeat it unfortunately that Joseph would send men on missions and then marry their wives it goes back to John C. Bennett in 1842 of the 14 women we know 10 were not on missions Three of them, we don't have dates for the marriage, so there's no way to know. The only one we can document is Orson Hyde, who went to Palestine. His wife was sealed to Joseph two years almost after he had left. So the idea that he was sent out so Joseph could quickly marry Mirinda, his wife, is just not supported. But we also have two sealing dates for Mirinda. One is after Orson comes home. So it's far from clear even in that one case. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really potent charge that's been made. You know, the, this the lowest kind of cynicism uh, on Joseph's part. I want to change shift gears here just a little bit and ask. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion lately about uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 132, which is, of course, the the text that gives us plural marriage as we understand it in, in LDS history. And there are some people who say it's not even a valid revelation, uh, some people who want to criticize or downgrade its status as scripture. What do you think about that? Well, I understand where the criticisms come from, because if you make D&C 132 go away, then maybe you can make polygamy go away and we can just forget about it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Plus, like I said, D&C 132 was a shock to me when I read it for the first actual 10th time, but the first time for seriousness when I started studying polygamy, there's a lot of harsh language in it. Some of it's really confusing. Some of the uh, metaphors definitely don't fit with 20th century culture. Some of the verbiage such as virgins, we don't want to be talked as virgins. We want to be talked about as young women or marriageable women. That's where the desire comes from. They can say, they say, you know, okay, I don't feel great feelings sometimes when I read the scripture, so it must not be divine. But what you have to realize is that these revelations that we have printed in our doctrine and covenants have been edited. They didn't come straight from God and were written down and then they were went to press. In fact, when they were writing the first book of commandments, the elders were meeting together and they were having an argument and they were criticizing Joseph because when he would 
dictate a revelation. He would do it in the word of God. And Joseph said, okay, if you can do it better, go ahead and do it. And nobody would take up the prospect except for one one person, William McClellan. Yeah. And he came back the next day and he said, okay, let's go with it. Because he realized it's hard to make up a revelation. And so, it, you know, it must have been divine. Mm-hmm. What happened was that these revelations were collected that had been circulated among the members. And Orson Pratt, who happened to be living with Joseph and Emma at the time, described the process that Joseph used in compiling this Book of Commandments as he worked with W.W. Phelps. And he said he would take parts of one revelation and combine them with another. He would delete parts of revelations. He would maybe not even publish a revelation and instead put it in his history. DNC 132 never went through this editing process at all. It was tucked away, and before it could be added to the next edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, unfortunately, the prophet was murdered. And it actually was kept secret until 1852, when Brigham Young and the other apostles decided that they needed to make the practice of polygamy known because it was no longer a secret. It was probably the worst kept secret in the Utah Territories and even starting to be in the United States. So at a conference, they released the revelation they told about how it had been revealed, and it became the new practice in the church, the new marriage standard. It actually didn't go into the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876, unedited. And since that time, it hasn't been edited. So the things in it that bother people, like polygamy, which we don't practice anymore in an earthly sense, and the confusing parts having to do with Joseph and Emma's personality, and the very harsh language used in that. I once did a study, and I compared all of the revelations that Joseph dictated for the Doctrine and Covenants, and I looked for the word destroy, and by far out of the whole book, the majority are in that section. So it's very uncomfortable to read that harsh language directed at Emma. So that's why it's unpopular. Why no prophet since has wanted to edit it, I don't know why, but I think it would take a lot of confidence to say, hey, I need to edit Joseph's words when I I didn't get the revelation. So that's my kind of take on it. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, all right. You two have spent a great deal of time studying early Mormon polygamy, researching it. You're really at the cutting edge on this on this topic. Uh, you've thought about it a lot. And so what advice would you give to church members as they encounter this issue, You know, which they'll either come across if they read their church history, or if they don't do that, the anti-Mormons will do them the service of thrusting it in their faces. So what would you suggest? The most helpful thing for me has been to look at the plural wives as people and not as numbers. That's why in our small volume, Joseph Smith's Polygamy Toward a Better Understanding, nearly half is devoted to bios of the plural wives. And when you read those bios, they get to know them as people instead of objects. And you see how they viewed the sealing ceremony, I think you gain some charity 
Also, I would say if suppose you're struggling with these young 14-year-old marriages like many people do, let's say read Helen's words. She wrote more than any other person on the topic. Like I said earlier, it's available free online. Download it, read it, see what she had to say before you make any decisions. Keep an open mind. I think that's really interesting because one of the ironic aspects of this, it seems to me, is that some critics who accuse Joseph Smith, the Mormon leadership or the church, Mormonism, of treating women as objects. Some critics actually do that. They don't listen to the women themselves. They treat them as just kind of pieces that were being moved around on a chessboard. But they didn't have personalities. They had no say. They didn't have any thoughts. Or if they had thoughts, they're not worth listening to. Uh, and that's, that's an interesting irony, it seems to me. Many of these women didn't, I mean, it's not, we get this idea that Joseph went to them and said, I had a revelation that you need to be my plural wife. You're commanded, marry me. And they said, okay, because I believe you're a prophet. That did not happen very often to our, our knowledge. Many of these women struggled for a very long time before they decided, yes, this is something I want to do. Well, and several of them also reported having visions. They saw Mary Elizabeth Rollins saw an angel, scared her to death, but <laughs> that was the confirmation that Joseph had promised her regarding plural marriage. Um, and Dan, I would add, regarding those plural wives, by my count, there was 35. Uh, Laura, I think, discounts a couple of them, so maybe 33. But of those, I think it's important to note that if we follow them out, all but seven of them died in Utah, but even those seven that were out of Utah, none of these women ever criticized Joseph. Even though they'd remarried, they'd had experiences with family and sexuality, none of them were later saying, Joseph used me or beguiled me or deceived me or that polygamy was just a sham for Joseph to get sex. I mean, there's none of that of the whole 35. And if we look at all of the Nauvoo polygamists at the martyrdom, and by my count, there's 115 we don't have any of these people who knew polygamy from the inside. None of these men and women are later saying Joseph was immoral or this was some kind of a principle that he was using to expand his sexual opportunities. And I think while we may not understand it, these people clearly did, and they accepted it right to the end. I think that may be a useful observation. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that we sometimes don't allow them to have a voice. We just don't listen to them, and we assume that we know something really, really well, and that they didn't, yet they were the ones who were in the position to actually see it in operation. They knew Joseph. They knew the the other women involved and so on, and yet their opinions are not worth noting. And, and of course, many of the critics would say, ah, so she claimed to see an angel. Well, we reject that out of hand. So one of the ways you deal with this is, Ignore the actual words and the testimonies of those who were involved. Discount them in the name of honoring them and saving them from exploitation. Yeah, and those who say that, uh, Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner's autobiography is actually online. They can Google it. I suggest if they're struggling with that to read her autobiography. It's the most amazing thing. I have read. She was quite a woman. She endured amazing trials during her lifetime that I can't even fathom having lived through what she lived through mm -hmm. during her lifetime as she struggled. And she loved her legal husband. 
I am thoroughly convinced it was an eternity only selling to Joseph. And one other thing I'd add, Dan, is that we don't have to like polygamy on earth. It's unfair. It's sexist. There are no leaders who have said every person in the celestial kingdom is a polygamist. We don't believe that that is true. What we're finding, though, and this is something that's happening, I think, right now, is that there are voices out there saying to women who may end up in some kind of an eternal plural marriage that they should feel victimized by that and that they should not trust God is going to be a just God, that somehow they're getting less. And the point I would make is that on earth, it's unfair. We acknowledge that openly, but we know nothing, as Laura said, I think earlier, about what eternal marriage really represents, and we know nothing about what eternal plural marriage represents. To create fear or to talk about it in a negative way is to go way beyond what we know. And it's unfortunate when these voices come out and they create this fear for women who may end up in some kind of a relationship. We don't know what that means, and there's no usefulness for that fear. And I wish the individuals that are talking about this would just acknowledge they don't know what they're talking about, and let's trust in God and trust that he has a plan of happiness, not a plan of eternal coercion that will allow all of us, who, who if we can live worthily, to obtain Uh, all of his greatest blessings. I keep coming back to the promise that Paul gives that that I hath not seen, neither hath ear heard, nor hath entered into the heart of man what things the Lord hath prepared for them that love him. And I think, okay, if you have faith in the God of the Bible, if you believe in any of it, then you should believe in that too, which is that whatever the next life is like, it's going to be so good that none of the grievances we can imagine will be worth anything compared to the blessings we'll receive. And so if you believe that, then you needn't worry. You may not know how it'll work out. You may not know what it'll be like, but you needn't worry. It'll be just fine. In fact, no, not just just fine. It'll be way beyond fine. Uh, It'll be incomprehensibly wonderful, and, and that's the divine promise. So it really comes down to a matter of of faith, I think. And for those who have faith, well, there's a line from Thomas Aquinas, I think. For those who have faith, no explanation is necessary. For those who lack faith, no explanation is possible. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, of course, talking about early Mormon plural marriage, but it seems to me that the, the principle does have some application here. Any other things that we want to say before closing this discussion? No, this has been great. Thanks for having this discussion with us. Yeah, thanks. We really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. I've certainly have gained new insights myself from um, not only this discussion, but from your work on plural marriage. And I think it's high time that we have serious, honest, informed conversations about this topic. So you've done wonderful things, and I appreciate it. Well, this is uh, this concludes our little discussion. I'm I'm Daniel Peterson, and I've been talking about early Mormon plural marriage and Joseph Smith with Brian and Laura Hales. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. An LDS Perspectives podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, 
policies, or practices 